This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 501, for March 30th, 2016. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, folks. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld, and joining me is the executive editor of Macworld, Susie Oaks. Hello, Susie. Hey, Glenn. How's it going? Fantastic. Fantastic. I'm so well rested. My eyes are are, are glowing with a warm glow. <laughs> I have hazel eyes. They pick up any color, blue, yellow, red, whatever it might be. How are you? You're doing well? Yes. You've been working you know, hard. Tired, always tired. You're working hard. <laughs> uh, we've got a little bit of news this week, and then we have an interview with Jonathan Zajarski, a security expert. It's going to come up just in a little bit later. We're just going to do a little bit of news and updates first. Uh, hey, so uh, the big thing we were talking about with Jonathan, uh, FBI, never mind. It's okay. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. So nuts. It's cool. Yeah. The FBI has said, oh, yeah, we got into that phone. We don't need your help with that phone anymore after, like, you know, all this this drama that said that, you know, only Apple had the expertise to get in this phone. That's why we were fighting about it in court. Um, they've withdrawn the warrants. It was never like a court case. It was just, you know, a court order that they were fighting over. So the order has been withdrawn and that's it. Yeah, I think it's important um, to remember. I, I noticed this on Twitter and it got retweeted a lot because I feel like at some point people lost sight of, uh, I mean, including people writing about it, opinion writers and some reporting, uh, lost sight of the fact that Apple wasn't being sued. Uh, yeah, Apple I mean, wasn't... everyone kept calling it kind of Apple versus FBI, but it was more in like, you know, the Superman versus Batman kind of <laughs> way, like not in a way that, you know, they're actually, they're, they're, there wasn't right. a court case they, called Apple no, versus FBI. Yeah, there's no criminal case. There was no civil case. This was a, an order. Apple a judge as, issued an order yeah. and Apple, you know, asked for that order to be dismissed. It's like an unrelated third party, as they describe themselves, innocent third party, uh, unrelated third party. But, you know, we're all, we're all you know, you could be subpoenaed uh, or have an order issued against you or your employer uh, yeah. if it made if sense. the government thinks that they need your help, they can, they can try to order it and you can resist. But that's what Apple tried to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're... they're the uh, lawyers got on the phone and they um, said, wow, like we're kind of as shocked as you guys are. We don't know what method they're using allegedly. Um, this was like a week ago and the government was supposed to give a status update by I think April 5th. And then they came back um, yesterday on March 28th being like, no, we got in. We got the data. It's fine. So we don't know what data, if any, they got. Um, our friend Jonathan um quipped on Twitter that someone should do a Freedom of Information Act and find all the cat pictures <laughs> that uh, Mr. Farouk had taken with his, his work-issued iPhone. So we don't know what data they got, and we don't know how, um, how they got it. So it's a fascinating story, and our guest is going gonna, is gonna to fill in a lot of, of details well, there. We published this week uh, breaking news from 1807. Uh, important, <laughs> that was a great piece. Important, thank you. Is, is, uh, this is a side story, uh, which I've wound up talking about a lot in the last couple of weeks, which was in F, uh, the D Department of Justice in one of their, their briefs a few weeks ago, cited a, a 1807 trial in which the Supreme <laughs> Court uh, Chief Justice, uh, John Marshall, one of the legendary uh, justices, it was actually a criminal trial because justices at that time, they actually heard trials not at the high appeals level as well, which is a whole other thing that has been reformed since. So Jefferson... Well, the court system probably wasn't quite as built out as oh, yeah. in well, 1807 you, as it is now. When you're in a circuit now. court, you're out riding circuit. You're out like riding on yeah, a horse somewhere. Like, to... They were on a horse. Exactly. That's why we got the name circuit But court. So the DOJ cited this case and said this is the Aaron Burr. We've got to have Aaron Burr because it's, you know, 2016 uh, treason trial in which there was encryption involved in a letter that ostensibly proved his, that he was trying to commit tr uh, either treason or a high misdemeanor against America. And he just wanted to be emperor of Mexico. Who doesn't want to be? It's emperor wonderful. Of Mexico? There are such competing theories. People have so many different ideas about this. I was looking at. I, I bought a couple books to research the topic. I was reading contemporary stories from the uh, like from exactly from that era from 1807, and then things written 20, 30 years later because Burr lived a long life. Uh, addressing it, you know, was he really a traitor? Was he trying to create his own empire? Uh, what was his plan? And uh, the thing is, uh, so we, so Susie let me write a wonderful story about what was the actual encryption used in this case, and was the Department of Justice right about saying that Marshall uh, was going to compel Burr's secretary to disclose the cipher key? And in fact, there was no compulsion; uh, there was no issue of the key at all. Um, Marshall only uh, ruled on the issue of uh, self-incrimination. 
um, called crimination. That is wonderful. Crimination. He might criminate himself. Uh, but uh, so I wrote up both the, the there are th at least three methods of encryption used in the letter. And it's fascinating because it's three different methods that span time. You can see the depth to which people would go to try to secure themselves in those days. And then the, the court case. So it was a lot of fun. Thank you for letting me write that. Cause it's, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the government had um, had cited this court case. Like Apple had said, what you're asking us to do is unprecedented. And the government's like, no, no, there's precedent. Remember the Aaron Burr case from 1807? Exactly. And Apple's like, okay, you just kind of proved our point to us because A, like not the same thing. And B, like, yeah, it's, just, it's it's encryption, but it's not encryption. The encryption was never broken. It's It was totally ridiculous. I just so, thought yeah, I really, Your piece was very enjoyable for um, explaining why, why it was ridiculous, but also like, you know, the fascinating backstory behind this ridiculous um, case being It is cited. an absolute key moment in American history. There's an 1804 trial that Burr presided over as the president of the Senate before he got kicked off Jefferson's ticket uh, for the reelection after the 12th Amendment was passed, which reformed the Electoral College. Like, that's a whole bunch of history. Burr crossed Jefferson by not allowing, uh, by not convicting um, uh, Chase, another Supreme Court justice, because Jefferson was trying to weaken the court, and this was almost revenge. Jefferson, when you read the account, Jefferson put out these orders uh, uh, for arrest on treason, and Burr was all the way down, and I think he was in Louisiana at that point, and um, two different states arrested him and then refused to send him to Washington, D.C. because they said that the orders were illegal, that they didn't match. There were no, there's no treason involved. Eventually, some loyalists got there. They frog-marched him, like literally marched him and put him on a pony and rode all night and camped out. And um, he actually pleaded at one point, passing through a state burr, pleaded with the city to, uh, you know, to reject this uh, overweening federal government, which is ironic because Jefferson didn't support a strong federal government. And the city refused. They said, we don't have the, you know, the right to do it was brought to the show trial and all the charges were just like, you know, he's not convicted. And then he goes off and, you know, winds up getting a legal career and having a very quiet rest of his life. But uh, American history is a very uh, vital and lively thing. Um, so that's Burr. <laughs> You're working on something right now. So you have We're reviews gonna... units of the iPhone SE and the iPad Pro 9.7 inch model, which we saw um, – uh, demoed and which pre-orders started last week for. So you were working feverishly away on reviews. Yes. Um, I got to go pick up review units yesterday. I ran into a um, friend of the show, Jason Snell, another friend of the show, Dan Frakes. So it was a little uh, Mac, Mac World reunion there and in, uh, Infinite Loop. Um, Infinite Loop is, is a fun place to visit unless you lose your car. And then it really is an infinite loop. I walked around <laughs> oh, for no. about 20 minutes trying to find my car. Because it's, it's a loop. It's literally a loop. And all the buildings look the same um, around the loop. They have a lot of other buildings. Um, infinite loop does not hold them because it's not actually infinite. Um, but... But yeah, the, all the buildings there look the same. So if you park in front of, oh my if gosh. you park between building two and building three, you better not be looking for your car between building three and building oh, four. I was there for the first time. Uh, a little a, pro tip for you. A few uh, months ago, and I was baffled by the symmetry you described. Mm. It was very confusing. I really thought I was in the right place, and I was walking around. I was like, they gave me all this stuff in like this little backpack, and then I had my original backpack. So I'm walking around like a dork in two backpacks <laughs> with my keys out, like jamming on that button, trying to get my car to like chirp at me so anyway but yeah i have the units now and everything's going much more swimmingly so i've got um i'm shooting videos for them today and we're going to have the reviews up by thursday morning which is the on sale so they're both up for pre-order this is the four inch iphone se and the 9.7 inch ipad pro aka the ipad air 3 the one that's like a regular ipad size but has all the the new pro features so I'm uh, playing with those right now, and spoiler, I really like them both. <laughs> um, I like smaller screened devices. Uh, all my Apple devices are, are of the smaller screen. Like the always, I always get the smallest one, um, and some of that is just because. Well, a lot of it actually is just because of price. Um, you get a deal. Uh, the iPad Mini is you know $100 cheaper than the iPad Air, and that one is like $200 cheaper than the iPad Pro. Um, the the really big iPad Pro, sorry. So 
And you know, you but you still get Apple's performance and quality and ecosystem and everything that we love about Apple, but you're saving a little money by sacrificing some screen size. So in these reviews, I'm going to be examining um, if that sacrifice is worth it. Uh, so far, I think it is, but you know, that's also a little <laughs> bit subjective. Um, yeah, if, if the iPad Pro big one feels like carrying around, you know, like the 17-inch laptops that felt like you were carrying around like a, a cafeteria tray, um, the, the regular size one is more like a clipboard. And it's just, you know, uh, Jason Snell mentioned this in his hands-on, but um, it even helps with the pencil. So the, the smaller iPad Air, uh, excuse me, the smaller iPad Pro, um, not confusingly named at all, uh, does support the pencil, which debuted with the big iPad Pro. And everybody loves the pencil, but it's actually even nicer to use on the smaller iPad because that, that device is easier to balance in one hand. Um, you can kind of, you know, hold it in one hand and draw with the other one. You don't need to be seated um, with the big iPad Pro. If I'm going to bust out the pencil and do some drawing or some note taking or something, it feels like something you have to do, like sitting down at a table because this is a big device. So having the the smaller iPad Air, um, you know, it's just more portable and it, it makes the pencil, you know, easier and more pleasant to use because you, you can be standing up or moving around. Oh, and I'll point out, uh, I think next week, uh, probably next week, unless there's some breaking news or something that's really exceptional, uh, we'll have interviews with three long time, uh, long time meaning months, iPad Pro 12.9-inch <laughs> uh, uh, nice. users uh, who work in a variety of um, industries. And, and one of the funny comments I'll, I'll highlight from Tom Bridge, he's an IT guy, he said the nice thing about the iPad Pro, it's he can do a ton of work with it. He's a consultant. He goes into offices. The fact that he, can, he stands up and it looks like he's doing something is really effective when you're billing by the hour, as opposed <laughs> to when you sit down at a laptop, people don't feel like you're working. They can't see what you're doing, but standing up is so active. And I thought that was <laughs> that was a funny benefit. So even easier with the 9.7-inch model. That's like a George Costanza tip. I think he says, like, always look angry exactly. and be like carrying a clipboard. But if you look angry, people will think you're busy. Yeah, you have to have a... Uh, <laughs> So stand up, look mad. I mean, I just, uh, an iPad is like the 21st century clipboard. So, yeah. There, and the, But the pencil will probably make it look more like you're working, too. There's like a, you're not just poking at this with your fingers. Like, you got a pencil. You're, you know, you're taking notes. There's a meme going around. I've forgotten the exact details. But someone said, um, always look like you're about to go kill some superheroes. It's like a strategy for women walking down the street to avoid harassment. So you have the murder look in your eyes. Yeah, your fight face, for sure. It was very funny. Yeah. It was very funny. It's like, always look like you're about to, you know, kill Superman or whatever, whatever the thing. Yeah. I Probably a villain. Maybe be muttering. Muttering exactly. is very threatening. Hey, so I'm confused about one thing, which is, uh, or maybe not confused, but vaguely irritated, which is often similar. Uh, so my wife... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, my wife has an iPhone <laughs> 5 that's been gradually failing the, down, the volume down button went a while you ago. You should get her the iPhone SE. I've heard of that. It's I, swell. She's been, I've been telling her for months, like, wait, honey, wait. And she's willing to wait. She doesn't want a new phone, but she's willing to get one because this one is literally failing. We've gotten, it's a five, it's a five. So I don't know, we've gotten four years out of it. It's paid off. It's been a good phone. I used it. She's used it. Uh, but it's really failing. And like the batteries now goes from like 51% to like 5% instantly. So there's something wrong there. Apple's doing the trade-in thing. Yeah. So here's my confusion because I went to their site and I I've know this policy has been around there for a while. Uh, you, I can't figure out if I'll be able to reserve the phone that she wants to get because we want a model and a color. You have to bring your current phone in. Uh, you have to meet with an Apple specialist who then determines what they're going to give you for it. We're probably going to get 50 bucks, I think, because mm -hmm. it's got some button problems. Maybe we'll get a little more, but maybe we'll get 50 bucks is what the site seemed to estimate, which is fine because it's not worth you know any other amount of money. Uh, so you have to meet with somebody, but then she doesn't want to give up the phone without having exactly the model and configuration she wants. And I can't figure out if there's a way, maybe on March 31st it'll show up. I can't see how you reserve a phone for pickup as part of this program where you want to go in and then use the the, the trade-in, which then lets you do the financing with Apple through its partner. Mm. Uh, so I guess we'll talk next week. I might have some information I mean, you could that. call before you went in. I kind of think mm. that this phone is not going to be quite as supply-constrained as some feeling. of the flagship phones. It might. I mean, we just got 
remember Slice Intelligence? Yeah. And they have that that app where you can track your packages, but then it also shares data about what you buy online, and then they, you know, they aggregate that data and try to sell it to to people. Um, so they've come out with you know this many people ordered this Apple device, and and this many percent of them had a device before that, and people kind of call shenanigans on these stats a lot because it's it's totally self-reported and it only um, measures online purchases. So, you know, something like the Apple Watch where you might go buy it in stores. I remember, um, you know, they put out some data about Apple Watch sales and everyone was like, yeah, this data is no good. Oh, it was such a small they just put sample out some of sample. IPhone- yeah. 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 And it's, it, you know, it's, it's a very specific segment of the market that has installed this app. So, you know, probably skews a little more um, wealthy in iOS than, you know, the the general um, population. But anyway, they put out um, some data just today about iPhone SE pre-orders. And I feel like this might be a little better because those are all done online. Um, But anyway, they said that um, they're, you know, the the pre-orders are just a fraction of, of what you see when Apple updates the, you know, the the big device. So I know a lot of people are waiting for this and I feel like it's going to sell well, but it might not be the kind of thing where, you know, you're desperate for a certain size and configuration and Apple's like, well, you're going to have to wait a while because we just don't yeah, have that. It's the you. same manufacturing lines from what it all sounds like. It sounds it's literally yeah. the same thing except the chamfers are, I mean, the innards are different and the chamfers are uh, yeah. speed blasted Yeah, the things they pointed right? out to me were like, okay, like the chamfers and then the, the logo on the back is, is actually a separate piece of metal and not just like a stamped foil thing so those are really subtle changes um and those are you know the ones that they they felt like they needed to point out in the meeting so yeah i think it's so yeah it's it's they've been manufacturing this phone for a while it's just they gave it new internals and stuff so it it might not be as hard to find well it's Um, possible they've been stockpiling it too and maybe that they have like millions and millions of units manufactured because a lot of stuff we know they're manufacturing kind of up against the wire of release Mm -hmm. in this case for all we know they switched over the production lines uh you know months ago and just been and there's s- only two capacities. Is there? Is that right? Yeah, it's 16 and 64. I thought there was a 32. I went to configure and... Uh, Let me double no, check. I'm pretty sure it's... I know. Well, this is, this is a part of what's confusing is I feel like the way in which... I mean, you can pre-order now, so... We should, yeah, we think, should, yeah, it's just two. It's uh, you, it, you get it in four colors, but it's 16 for 399 or 64 for 499 and that's it. So if you need more than 64 gigabytes, your your uh, your only bet is the 128 gigabyte iPhone. Oh, that's 6S. right. And we definitely, you know, and, and my wife wants the uh, the 64. It's worth it because you know for yeah, future proofing. 64 is the way to go. She often sure. uses a phone for four years, you know, before it completely falls apart, and she's never broken a screen either. So that's you know some data points. Data points in my wife's usage very important. Um, <laughs> my husband's never broken one either because he's like I, Mr. Otterbox. He's using my Nina Garcia Otterbox now, and everyone's like, "Whoa, fancy." I never broke a screen. I chipped one once just before I was going to trade it in. But you know what? what? There was a defect in the phone camera. So they replaced it, and I didn't have to pay for a screen replacement. I broke the crap out of a bunch of screens. (laughs) (laughs) You're badass. (laughs) So one last topic before we talk to Jonathan Zajarski. Night shift. So feature shipped uh, about uh, was it a week ago now? That's that's recently with uh, iOS nine point three and something that was uh, f- uh, much awaited. Some people had used Flux, the F dot Lux software before that, and uh, I went to write a story about like you know how does this actually you know what does the research show? How effective it is? Um, is this particular tool? Because I'd read various things. I read some studies that seem to imply that the uh, research about blue light affecting our sleep cycle, specifically about our melatonin production, which increases. Uh, this is the funny thing reading the research. The research says literally at about 10 p.m., your melatonin production starts to you know increase and it peaks by midnight. I'm like, 10 p.m. in what time zone? But the researchers are looking at sort of standard. You're in the middle of a time zone. You're not. It's daylight. Say, right, whatever. But it's kind of cracks me up that it always says like 10 p.m. Some of them say between 9 and 10 p.m. So wherever you are local time, depending on where the sun is in the sky, the sidereal moment that is about 10 p.m., that's your body's natural cycle. And they've isolated people from that to test it too when they get them away from natural cues and use artificial cues how people adjust. Anyway, I start looking at the research. I start talking to uh, scientists and the, the science isn't settled. It's really clear that there are receptors in the eye that respond to a very narrow range of frequencies that are blue. Not all blue light, but a very specific range do, uh, triggers 
a reaction in uh, melanopsin receptors in our eyes, which are only recently discovered, I think less than 20 years ago, that there's this other kind of receptor than, than what was known. It's all very interesting. But the upshot is this. And I wrote an article that's not, uh, I hope not controversial. People have been giving me different amounts of feedback about it. But it's that uh, the that blue may not be a trigger by itself. There may be combinations of things. It sounds very likely. So blue does trigger a reaction in the melanopsin receptors. But there may be other things that have to happen at the same time that are coordinated. Uh, some researchers have looked at the blue-yellow shift that happens at dusk and whether that is part of the trigger as a pattern. Um, others think that blue may be a total canard. Um, and a lot of the studies are very small and they put like 12 people in a sleep lab for a week and control them. So they're not looking at people at months. They're not looking at thousands of people. So blue may or may not be the trigger or by itself, but if it is, uh, it's not, it's possible that intensity is also very important. And so the screen intensity relative to your field of view is an issue. And then <laughs> If that's the case, the amount of blue that's reduced using night shift or f.lux is not enough to change that, even if that turns out to be absolutely the trigger. So it's uh, it's this funny combination of things. And, and some of the feedback I've gotten from people is, that's great, but you know, works for me. And I'm like, to me, that's totally cool. And I even said that in the article. It doesn't matter if it's placebo, if it's effective, right? Yeah. The placebo effect is still an effective effect. Yeah, if it works for you, if it triggers you, if it goes into that mode and you go, ah, oh, it's time to sleep. The thing that I think, like using f.lux, I installed that recently as part of this uh, testing on my main laptop, the only computer I use at night, uh, only a uh, uh, you know, desktop-style computer I use at night. And my night Mac. What's that? The night Mac. Yeah, night Mac. <laughs> I have day Mac and night Mac. And uh, my night Mac. And what it's great is it's like Flux says uh, there's nine hours before you get up. And I'm like, oh. That's great. And it's dimming. It's, so it's it's both fainter. It's a little fainter. I mean, the brightness is still up. But the color shift, it tells me I need, as it slowly shifts into the yellow, tells me I need to put the computer down. The same thing with the phone. I pick yeah. up the phone. It's a little it yellow. It like a cue to, you know, to get in your night routine. It's good. So even if removing some blue doesn't actually change my melatonin suppression cycle, I don't care because it, it actually has been helping me get to bed a little bit earlier. And you know what they've done in studies? I mean, the eight-hour thing, uh, eight hours a night is, um, is like 98.6 degrees. Like that's not what everyone's temperature is. And that's not what everyone needs eight hours a night of sleep. I knew a woman worked with at a company about 20 years ago. She needed four hours sleep a night. I need like nine. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a friend who needs, I have a friend in New York who she did some, uh, oh, it was like a skincare focus group or whatever at her gym and a bunch of people around the table and everyone was asked how much they slept the night. And she's like nine hours and everyone stares or everyone else is like five, six, something like 30% of adult Americans sleep less than six hours a night. And the poorer you are, the more you sleep, the richer you are, the less you sleep, which is weird. You'd think, I guess, I guess people who are making money are not engaged in um, proper sleep hygiene. Uh, but I, I try to get seven to eight. In any case, anything that helps you, if you change your sleep habits where you needed 15 to 30 minutes extra a night, you're sleeping six and you really need six and a half, this is a cue that helps you get there. That's awesome. It's like calories. If you're trying to lose weight and you reduce your calorie consumption by 200 calories a day, it adds up and can make a huge difference even when it doesn't seem like that much. So that's my take on night shift. We'll get more research and find out um, uh, it's you know so nothing that I'm saying is definitive, but I think there's still a lot of work out there to to provide any definitive uh, answers, any specific proof about whether it has an effect. So the thing that um, when you mentioned the, the the studies being so small, yeah. that made me think that maybe Apple should get in on this because um, at the event they talked about CareKit and they gave us a, an update on ResearchKit. And what it's really done is helped um, some some medical researchers get just. Uh, vastly larger pools of data and bigger studies and sample sizes than they ever would have been able to in a traditional study where, you know, you, like your doctor has to you know, help you find a study and then you have to enroll and qualify and, 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 you know, write down data yourself and then turn it in and you never find out what the results are or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, Apple could do like a sleep 
thing, you know, and they could they could combine data about how long people were awake, how well they slept, how many hours they slept, if they were using night shift, if they were using true tone, if, you know, they had exercised that day. And, um, you know, your phone is collecting so much data and it can it can collect data about, you know, the weather. It can match that up with data about the weather in your location, um, what time the sun went down, um, the color temperature of the, you know, the light in your room. Um, the iPad Pro, the new one that came out, um, has embedded sensors. Um, the All the devices, all the iOS devices have an ambient light sensor that can help with the auto brightness feature. Um, so, but the, the ambient light sensors in the new iPad also detect um, not just the intensity of the ambient light, but the temperature of it. So if they started putting those, and, and that's, that's how True Tone kind of works to try to match your screen's color temperature to the color temperature of the room. Um, and if that, if that you know, works, they can put those, um, those new color temperature sensors in all the devices. And then you know, th- that would be a new, a new you know, kind of data to, to see how these things really do affect sleep with a larger sample size. It'd be pretty amazing, especially linked, uh, you're talking about the sleep time too, is I have a Fitbit and I've been tracking my sleep the last few weeks mm-hmm. out of curiosity, partly while I was testing this yeah, feature. Yeah, there's so many apps. You can like put your phone on your bed. It'll measure mm-hmm. you know, how much you're tossing and turning. Um, the Apple Watch um, has some sleep apps. And, you know, then you're like, well, I have to plug in my Apple Watch at night. Like, no, you just have to get into a different routine of plugging it in while you're you know, showering for the, an hour yeah. here and there. Like, plug it in while you're showering. Plug it in, like, you know, during your meeting that you have every day. And it'll, it, it'll get you through. Like, mine gets to be, like, 50% oh. every night. So if I plug it in for a little bit, I could wear it all night. I've done that before. So, well, it's also, so yeah, while you're the, all the night, different devices. In the sli- yeah. A sleep app, you're not using the screen at all. So I imagine you don't actually yeah. use very much power overnight while using it for sleep uh, tracking. Um, if they did, I mean, that's the other thing is uh, uh, they can't, uh, the current Apple Watch can't measure blood oxygenation levels. I'm not sure if they'll be able to do that because you can do that with a, a clip on your finger, you know, with an LED. That's how they often will do pulse and oxygenation to check uh, blood yeah. flow and um, for sleep apnea testing. Um, but we're going to see sensors like this come out that'll be clever and the thing on your wrist might actually be able ultimately to detect things like oxygenation level, which tells you how deep your breathing would also detect sleep apnea for people who are having that problem, as I do. Yeah. Um, there could be a little, like, smart band or an app that kind of gives you a little, like, jolt or shock yeah. when you're snoring and you have but to flip over or something like that. The, the, the Apple could do so much in sleep, so I kind of hope that that's one of their next, sleep like, health kit. focuses because everyone could sleep better, Yeah, I love you know? Sleep Kit. It's a great idea. Yeah, because it's the amount sleep of information kit. they could collect just now is pretty extraordinary. It's a lot of it's inferential, but if you have a million people or even – 50,000 people who are providing nightly sleep information, it would be vastly more than any study has ever. I would totally opt in. Yeah. I would fill out a little survey every morning. Like I would let them look at, I would let them look at all my, my other <laughs> things, like my exercise data and stuff. Like, I mean, everyone's interested in sleeping better because, well, especially if they you know, tailor something. you know how much better you feel when you're rested yeah. than when you're not. Especially if they'd help tailor something, if you could get specific recommendations, maybe not from the study, but like once they'd gone through this, you'd be able to say mm-hmm. like, oh, we've been monitoring your sleep. Here's the thing. Uh, our app suggests that if you will go to sleep 15 minutes later and you set an alarm every day at this time, you will be so much better rested. Try it for a week and let us know, right? Yeah. And that or would like be your incredible. patterns are matching up with somebody else oh, who takes you know, a nap every day yeah. and maybe you should try that. It'd be fantastic because one of the things I, a sleep uh, doctor I go to, in fact, said you should set an alarm every morning. The reason, one reason you're having, you're feeling tired is if you get up at a different time every day. Uh, or you let yourself sleep as long as you think you might want to, that is actually worse. Even if you're getting what you think is less sleep, getting up at the same time is better. Oh, okay. I know. Isn't that wild? But it's because every time you change your pattern, because your body has your body has this an amazing amount of different things that are regulating, um, uh, you know, it's all this hormone production. Melatonin is one component. Um, there's all of these things going on in various cycles. When you get those cycles off, you know, we're working on a 24-ish hour day. Our bodies are like, it's like 24.25 on average hours, despite the fact that that's not the length of the day. Um, <laughs> so when you get out of sync, like during uh, daylight saving time transition, it's problematic. And it's probably easier to control like when you get up. You know, and then that'll, if you get up at the same time every day, like that'll kind of ease you into going to bed at the same time every day. Ostensibly. But if you try to start with like, okay, I'm going to go to bed at 1130 every night. Like, you know, some nights you're like, well, I still got stuff to do. And other nights you're watching Netflix and other nights you're already passed out by 10. So 
like, yeah, maybe getting up at the same time every day is a good yeah. place to start some sleep, getting into a routine. Some sleep medicine people say don't sleep in on the weekends because it'll really mess you up. You can't catch up sleep. Well, I have a four-year-old, so that's not a problem for me. <laughs> He's trying to keep me regular. Uh, well, now we'll move on to our, our main event in this podcast, and uh, we'll be joined by our guest. We're joined now by Jonathan Zajarski, who's a security expert who specializes, among other things, in iPhone forensics. You've probably seen him uh, quoted quite a bit because he's been using Twitter as a way and his blog uh, to uh, discuss a lot of things that are often covered in private at companies that are deep in work on trying to crack into the iPhone or, or find out more about what makes it tick. Jonathan, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. We've been citing you, uh, I think, practically every week. <laughs> Susie will every single week. Agree. Yeah. We're like, oh yeah, you should go read Jonathan's blog about this and that. And the You're other my thing. favorite tweeter right now. It's, I'm I'm so into this topic, and I know <laughs> nothing about it, so it's been very helpful. <laughs> I'm surprised my blog's gotten this much exposure. I've seen uh, a couple of congressmen retweeting uh, some of my blog entries, and just a, a lot of interest out there. It's. Uh, uh, iPhone suddenly is is popular again in the media, I guess. Yeah, it's a great time to be a specialist, right? When when this thing that you're interested in, it's like suddenly I, I wish that typesetting would come back into vogue and then people would be uh, uh, interested in the number of spaces after periods. Uh, but it's yeah. – it's uh, so, I mean, you know, we just had this news. Uh, we're recording on uh, the Tuesday after the FBI uh, said, hey, hey, it's cool. We're, we got this covered. It's fine. Never mind. Uh, so, you know, one of the reasons I think you've gotten a lot of attention is that, as I say, you've been ex you've been discussing this in an open and engaged way, and and talking to people on Twitter, responding to questions um, in a way that I think a lot of people in the field are locked away uh, behind closed doors. Right? They're either working for companies developing cracks, or um, in you know, in some cases, or developing uh, techniques to notice these cracks so that they can prevent uh, uh, their stuff from being exploited. Um, so you've got a lot of insight into this that you're sharing. And, you know, one of the first questions, of course, with the FBI's filing a week ago and then yesterday is, uh, did the FBI, you know, in your opinion, do you think they had a method in the wings and they whipped it out given the speed by which they say they've, they've solved this issue? Yeah. So it, it was, this whole thing happened really fast. And, and I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot of research, uh, a whole lot of great new research on iPhone the past couple of years really i mean the most i've done an iphone is like balance a bowl of pretzels on my stomach while tweeting you know for the past year so when all this uh you know broke this was just you know kind of huge uh, i mean we were always messing around with you know little hacks and exploits but in terms of you know the forensics industry it's been kind of at a standstill uh, for at least a couple of years now and the best anybody could do is you know just a basically a backup of an unlocked device uh, the technique we we don't know exactly what was used, obviously, um, but based on the time frame, you know, that we're looking at here of maybe just over thirty days, uh, maybe even less than that. Uh, it's probably either this this hardware uh, mirroring uh, technique that I've been talking about in my blog, or it could also be a software exploit. Uh, software exploits generally take a little while to develop, you know, a lot of the time it's like trying to land a 747 on the side of a mountain. So, uh, you know, it, it definitely took them longer than a week to throw something like this together if they did any testing, uh, uh and validation of it. Can, can we talk about the, uh, the hardware cloning thing? I, I think anybody who is a fan of the movie real genius knows how easy it is to swap in new hard or new chips, uh, in flight. But those were of course, um, EE proms. And again, oh God, I remember that. that was <laughs> <laughs> and then you have popcorn. Exactly, popcorn results. So, uh, shout out to my homies. Remember EE proms. But uh, so this, the cloning in this case, um, you've written about it quite a bit, and I've seen it discussed a lot as as a relatively, uh, let's say, well understood technique. That it's not like um, it's not magic. I mean, you could, I mean, it's not something that was suddenly invented or it's magic. There's, I remember people talking about desoldering pins on boards for well before NANDs, you know, decades ago to swap in different chips or to do forensic examination. Um, can you explain it here, you know, maybe at a high level uh, for listeners, um, what's involved in, in this particular approach in the NAND uh, uh, removal and cloning? Yeah, so we have been doing this for a while. And ever since the, the iPhone came out, there have been a number of uh, companies and, and law enforcement agencies getting into doing more with uh, chip-off forensics. Um, what, what this basically is, is uh, there, there's an epoxy that's holding that chip 
onto the board. Uh, and uh, they're heating up this epoxy to the point where they can pop that chip off without destroying it. Um, I think the video we saw, that, that Shenzhen Mall video, uh, the guy was using a soldering gun uh, to do that, kind of heat that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I, I'm not a big hardware uh, guy myself, but I, I work with plenty of guys who are the, just pros in this field. They just amaze me. Um, so I, <clears throat> I ran a lot of these ideas by them as well uh, to kind of get their sign off. But basically the way it's been explained to me and, and the way I've seen it done uh, or demonstrated to me is, uh, you know, the, you, you get this epoxy heated up enough to where you can remove that chip off the board. Uh, and then the, the, this chip is kind of a sort of a standard uh, standard type of storage chip. It's got what's called a ball on the bottom, which is basically like a ball of contacts on it. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, this is an EMMC type of chip. So it's very similar to what what you know is like an SD card, a uh, real similar uh, way of communicating with the chip. Uh, they But they pop this chip off. Um, uh, they're able to uh, fit it into uh, a certain type of fixture that a, a number of different chip programmers support. Uh, and a chip program is kind of like, think of it like a, a CD burner for microchips. So they take this chip, they drop it into this, this reader, essentially, uh, and dump the contents of it. We've been doing that since... Uh, before the iPhone actually had onboard encryption, I remember a bunch of guys looking at <clears throat> the blocks on the original iPhone and the disk system and trying to put together just how the NAND stored its data and doing carving, you know, pulling images and all kinds of fun stuff uh, from, from these devices. So that part's nothing new. The, um, the part that is new here which is what a, a number of different firms are still in the process of validating and getting the right equipment and testing this, uh, is to, to take that copy of the data that you can pull off the chip and then copy it back on. Uh, some chips, depending on where you're writing to, uh, you know, uh, memory addresses, things like that, you've got you different parts of the chips that are writable and parts of it that are not, or parts of it that require special code to be written. Uh, after taking a look at where this passcode counter gets stored on the 5C, uh, it's, it seems like it was even easier than a lot of us thought it would be. You, you basically just have to rewrite uh, part of that file system, part of the NAND back onto the chip. So, <clears throat> so in theory, everything you know, makes, makes sense. You, you make a copy of the chip, you try a bunch of passcodes, blow the phone up and then put that copy <laughs> back on kind of like, you know, you want, you want to play the same level as super Mario brothers every, every time after you keep killing Mario, it's kind of the same, same philosophy in practice. There are a number of caveats, which is why it takes longer, obviously. Um, but I think from, you know, communicating with, with the forensics guys that I know that are working on this, uh, all of these obstacles are, are uh, pretty realistic um, in terms of getting past them. Um, I think that you know we're going to see some public solutions come forward as well uh, as a result of this. I know from um, from years ago that there used to be, and I think this is actually is a plot in some movies that's relatively accurate. Is there used to be uh, uh, the notion that you take uh, instead of putting a chip back in or swapping in and out or putting a socket in that made it easier to swap, you'd actually run a ribbon from the traces on the uh, or the pinouts on the circuit board and run it to an essentially an electronically erasable or um, uh, electronic device that would simulate the chip. And I don't know if that's possible with NANDs or this case, so that they would actually be booting an image and replacing the image instead of actually updating chips. And that would, you know, obviously produce more efficiencies because you wouldn't be dealing with hardware. You'd only be dealing with an electronic image. Uh, I don't know if that's possible in this case. There's like particular properties of the the NAND chip or the kinds of, um, I don't know if it's invalidation that the iPhone does that would prevent um, something like that. I've heard from a couple of EE hobbyists that something like that might be possible, but I think there are some bigger caveats, um, specifically with the low level parts of the chip. I think even some people, uh, from what I've read online are, are having trouble getting, uh, even the same type of chip from a different, uh, manufacturer. Like if it didn't come from Apple, if it's not an Apple chip, okay. getting it to accept that, uh, there are just, there are a lot of little tiny details in this that I don't think the public is, is, 
quite aware of. But it, you're right that that that's one possibility. There there are some challenges with that. The other thing, really, I mean, and I mentioned this in my blog too. All you really need is an efficient way to pop the chip on and off. You know, socket the chip or do you know something along those lines. Uh, to where you can treat that chip kind of like an SD card almost, and um, just you know keep rewriting that image back on, pop it back in the phone. You could probably even uh, put together some kind of a, a Frankenstein where you know you've got the chip exposed outside the body of the phone, so you don't have to disassemble it. Well, yeah, that's what I wonder. It's probably going to look pretty ugly. Or you have um, I, I read one account. I forget if it was yours or someone else's who was looking at the timing, like how quickly you could be swapping chips in and how many uh, writers you'd have to have running in parallel and assuming either the department of justice or its contractor that it's hired for this has resources that are whatever they need. Uh, it's not like this is a scarce or rare, rare thing, a device that would write these chips. Um, so they could have a number of them running in parallel to be continuously churning out the cloned items. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you could, I'm sure there are a number of uh, interns that would jump at the chance to work with DOJ on something like this. They might be crying by the end, but, you know, they, they, don't, have any, they don't have a shortage of manpower. You know, if, if they need manpower to sit there and switch out chips, I, I mean, it's not, you could go to Toys R Us and buy a $20 robot that could probably, you know, do it with some level of uh, sophistication. Uh, you know, I would think that someone like DOJ would have, you know, some really cool tech to be able to switch chips out but even if they don't if you're talking about you know hiring a bunch of kids to go and move these chips in and out uh you know it's it's doable is this something that would work on newer phones than the iphone 5c is the secure enclave does does that complicate this if, if the shooter had had a, a brand new phone instead of a phone from 2013 i think yeah, so the secure enclave changes the whole game for this. Um, it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily uh, prevent software exploit, but talking just specifically about this this NAND mirroring technique, that fail counter is stored in a journal on the five C on the file system. But once you once you put that secure enclave mm. into the mix, that gets stored in a in a completely different place now. And you have to come up with a completely different attack. I don't think that we've got the the chip level technology yet or enough information even about the enclave to be able to really determine if we could attack it that way. I'd heard folks suggest that the NAND uh, mirroring might not be what happened because, uh, I mean, not just the, uh, you brought up initially the uh, time it takes to develop, you know, a zero day or some kind of exploit that would let you crack the phone without, you know, having to go to this hardware extreme. And so I'm, I know companies and individuals are constantly working on those. Apple doesn't pay uh, bounties. Uh, so these often people sell them on the open market or in uh, certain markets uh, to governments or other parties or in security firms are also developing them themselves to sell as a forensics tool to uh, government when they have contracts. So all that's well characterized. So someone's sitting on this thing or they just were like, oh my gosh, we could make millions of dollars if we had this tomorrow. Let's step up our effort. Calls the FBI. Do you think that's a more plausible scenario than the NAND mirroring, given how fast this turned around from a, we don't have any technique to, we got something to, hey, we're cool, we're good? Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible that a software exploit was used. I don't think anyone could have just walked up to FBI uh, and introduced this. I mean, there were a number of security researchers, including myself, who tried to, you know, approach FBI uh, early on. Uh, I, I would have been glad to share, you know, this this NAN hardware mirroring technique as, as well as some other ideas. Uh, everyone I know who approached FBI got sort of the runaround or cold shoulder. Um, I, I asked a number of security researchers if they had been approached by FBI, and uh, they were told no. Uh, so, yeah, I think that the whole public perception that anyone, you know, in a garage can just call FBI. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it reminds me of like when, when you remember when baby Jessica fell down the well, like decades ago yes. oh, yeah. and there were like crowds of people with some insane ideas. I remember this one guy who had like this hairbrush that could grab on a fabric and just like crazy stuff that you would never want to try on baby. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's, that's the kind of scenario that, that we're looking at here. 
I think FBI has got a number of private contractors that they have established relationships with, they have an established chain of custody with, uh, that they trust, uh, that probably hold clearances uh, for the government, uh, or for, for government projects, I should say. Uh, my guess is if there was an exploit involved or, or any kind of new tech, whatever it is, probably came through one of these companies, um, the most likely uh, scenario is that someone either approached uh, this company with the exploit and sold it to him for a lot of money and then went on a cruise or that the company was, was already in the process of, of acquiring one or trying to develop one. Oh, right. Cause I forget there's that pipeline too, is a contractor that's already got the clearances and relationship you're discussing. They can be approached by outside parties or they'll have relationships with researchers who will be outside of the fold. Uh, they could be paying for those exploits, doing that separately and privately, and then bringing them in too. And so that's obviously a pathway. Yeah, I mean, it, it the exploit originally could have totally come from you know some teenager who wrote a jailbreak exploit, but I don't think that went directly to the government. Right. If that's the case, <laughs> right. it probably went through. You know, some, most people are saying Celebrite. Let's assume that's the case. You know, I would imagine teenager contacts Celebrite, or Celebrite goes and looks. Uh, you know, through its its uh, list of resources for these types of exploits, and then brokers that deal privately. Uh, as I recall, there was this uh, a bit of irony about Celebrite, by the way, the company that's been floated with this, is that uh, their equipment, they sell a lot of different stuff. And um, I believe they have a transfer. Yes, they do. They have a, a branded device with their name on it that lets you transfer stuff um, from one phone to another. And they're in use at Apple stores. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I read that. That's, that's really nothing new. I mean, no, I Celebrate <laughs> made these things for you know carriers, and it's it's kind of funny. But if you think about it, you know, I I mean, Joe Schmo comes into an Apple store with an Android phone. Oh, yeah. First thing I do is get them off that Android phone. No, it's great. It's just I. It's not exactly irony, but it was kind of amusing. It's like, where have we seen this name before? Where is it? It's like ah, in every <laughs> Apple store on a piece of equipment. Uh, well, it'd be so, interesting mm -hmm. to see if they start disappearing from Apple stores after this. That would be yes. They, it turns out they have no. I don't want to say, they don't have cameras inside monitoring. It's gonna not that that would help in an Apple store. Uh, so the, one of the, the reasons I ask about the zero day two is that um, the FBI has indicated it's going to help other law enforcement with this. And then there's a whole issue, um, Susie. I know you had a question about. I'll let you ask the question about um, you know where does this exploit go forward. Yeah, this is my big burning question is like, what happens next? Do they have to tell Apple? Do they have to disclose to Apple what the method is? Because I know that Apple is really curious and, and they don't actually know. Um, or can they just, you know, keep it secret and keep it like on the law enforcement side? Well, they've done a good job keeping this uh, this Tor vulnerability secret, right, with his other case and the uh, the NIT that they were able to use uh, on this this uh, child porn website. Uh, so they've been FBI has been fighting in court to keep that secret, and so far has been successful. I think if they want to, they can certainly keep this secret. Apple's probably going to try and force the issue, though. So you've got all these other phones now. You've got one in Boston, and DOJ's got this list of, what, 19 phones or something. Every single one of them is going to get a challenge from Apple now, uh, citing this alternative method. And if they're smart, they're going to demand that they verify that this method really doesn't work on any of these phones. So, you know, FBI's kind of shot themselves in the foot by saying, you know, we can't do this. Oh, wait, yes, we can. Sorry, never mind. Uh, Apple's going to make this this uh, a big credibility problem for FBI in in every other iPhone case until they get a hold of this. You know, one of the things I sort of love about the the crypto and security world is that a lot of the times, however uh, fiendishly difficult it is to find a problem, it can often be described in such a way that you know it's a couple lines of English prose to allow someone else with expertise to duplicate it. You know, so you spent a year finding this thing, you say, oh, there's a buffer overflow at OXBBAA, you know, whatever, and all, and send this packet. And they're like, oh, okay. And, you know, so I think Apple has an easier time, like knowing something exists that's a flaw that affects a particular thing, it gives them an area to explore more deeply themselves. And if, should anything leak, should anyone involved in any of the law enforcement agencies accidentally or intentionally uh, provide any limited detail that could crack it all open for Apple to repair it as well? Yeah, well, and, you know, part of this is a question of whether or not 
this would affect secure enclave devices. Um, so I think Apple's going to be looking much more closely at the secure enclave now. Uh, they kind of got a little bit of egg on their face when when the, the rest of the community kind of realized it's not as magical as we thought it was. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot of the stuff that kind of came out of Apple through reporters and whatnot kind of confirmed that, yeah, you know, this – if we wrote it back door, we could totally break the secure enclave uh, a lot easier than you think we can. So I'm sure that, you know, if they're considering that a, a software solution was used here, they're going to be looking at the enclave. They're going to shore it up, you know, make sure that uh, there aren't any, you know, uh, glaring holes in it. If it only affects non-enclave devices, arguably Apple probably doesn't have much of an interest in, in fixing that. Right. Um, so it, I think it really comes down to, you know, we're talking about an old phone. I, I mean, this is a phone most people were embarrassed to own in the first place. <laughs> uh, we've kind of moved on. Uh, you know, I, now I think my that, mom has that phone. <laughs> well, now she can get a rose gold phone, which is the new thing to be embarrassed about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's technology's moved on. We've got much more secure devices today. You know, to Apple's credit, they've really done uh, a, a killer job of securing these newer devices. They're not perfect. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the chances that they will find an, an efficient exploit that will work on an SCP device is probably a lot slimmer than having it work on, you know, the 5C and the 4S and, and all the older devices. Not too many people really care about that anymore. Uh, l let me ask uh, uh, this question that a bunch of people have been asking about, too, is I tweeted something yesterday about, uh, well, I'm going to go put a six-digit, I've already put a six-digit pin on my iOS devices. You and a number of other people said, oh, uh, including our friend Rich Mogul, uh, no, you got to go alphanumeric. Uh, and, um, you know, I know there's a complexity difference, but one uh, listener slash reader Asked, was confused about something you said about the difference between how pins are used in iOS devices and a full uh, alphanumeric passcode. Can you explain the difference there and why people should opt um, if they're interested in the highest level of integrity of their devices for an uh, alphanumeric? Yeah, so so both both techniques still use encryption. Uh, I want to make that clear. It's not like your device is sitting there and encrypted if you use a, a numeric PIN. Uh, Apple has made mention in their, their iOS security guide that using an alphanumeric passcode does increase the entropy of the encryption keys, so it, it can give you stronger encryption. But I think a lot of that still, uh, you know, really comes down to your choice of key that you're using and, and the overall key space. So if you've got a four-digit pin or a six-digit pin, if it's numeric, your key space is really limited. Uh, I mean, you're talking about 10,000 uh, different combinations or a million different combinations. The difference between guessing all of that, if you do the math, it's 80 milliseconds per guess. Uh, at the fastest. That's as fast as you can go on an iPhone, the way Apple designed it. So you're, you're still only talking about maybe a week to crack a six-digit pin. Uh, it's, it's less than a day to crack a four-digit pin. Once you bump that key space up to include alphanumeric characters, and I'm not sure exactly you know, how Apple reached the conclusion of five and a half years for a six-digit alphanumeric passcode, you know, what, what characters they included in that, considered in that. But not only do you have like A to Z and symbols, so if you think about it, you can use, you know, the Norwegian keyboard if you want to, <laughs> or a combination of different keyboards. I think the only thing you can't use is emoji. Uh, so your key space is just radically bigger here. And that's what takes uh, just a, a computationally infeasible amount of time to crack. You stick with six you know, keep it convenient. Just switching to alphanumeric, you get almost six years uh, time to brute force that. And I think someone else did the math. If you go up to, um, what was it, 16, uh, it might even be less. You're, you're already into 100 plus years. I've also been, uh, I've been promoting the thing that I think is getting some credence lately, especially as password uh, acceptance has changed or the, uh, the formulas on websites is I'm doing the, uh, the three word, um, what do you call it? Uh, engram. Uh, so I'm using three unlikely to appear together, random words and, you know, it winds up being like 20 something characters, but I can remember it. It's three common English words. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's the dice, uh, diceware approach and, uh, talk to a number of, uh, encryption researchers who are like, look, you know, 
it's <laughs> no one's going to brute force that unless you're using common word combinations. If you use three words that appear in order from Hamlet, that might or any English text uh, or whatever text you might be susceptible. But outside of that, you're actually providing yourself with you know a very high degree of entropy. I guess it depends how smart the password cracker that they would be using would be. I mean, if it was me writing it, you know, the first thing I would do is I would tell it to go and find the least likely patterns of words to go together and try those first. Oh, but there's quintillions uh, of those is the problem. It's like the, <clears throat> excuse me, even with three words, uh, I saw the math uh, in a paper from a few years ago. Uh, the the It's one of these, uh, not law of very large numbers, it's the inverse of that is that with a very with a set of all English words, the number of improbable combinations is in the quadrillions or something. Even with a, I think with a five-word n-gram, you get down to three, and it's still very, very high. So it's not a good searchable space as opposed to, um, you know, someone using the word Apple one exclamation point as their password. Right. Yeah. And I, I wonder how far you could go with that with, uh, you know, a, a weighted Markovian filter or exactly. you know, even some Bayesian filter. I, I bet you could get it a little bit better, but you're, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, using completely nonsensical uh, phrases or combinations, especially of symbols, uh, you know, Snowden used that whole Margaret, Thra- Margaret Thatcher, 110% sexy. Of course, don't use that now. <laughs> you know. um, but uh, yeah, that's that's a lot better than Apple One or you know anything like that. I you know personally what I do so I I try not to use words at all. I end up using uh, certain patterns that only I know in my head, uh, certain mapping patterns, visual patterns on on keyboards and things like that. And I, I'll change that pattern up once in a while. But if if I use that pattern to create a a, a random set of characters. Uh, and symbols, uh, I can get it to a point where it's relatively easy to remember, but it, it does, you know, still take practice. It's really how much work do you want to put into this and how much, how much, how often are you going to actually type this thing in? Are you going to use the fingerprint reader or are you going to type this in like every time you need to use your phone? Well, that's a good question. And, uh, one of our uh, listeners asked uh, about this that, you know, should you give up using uh, touch ID? And so I now have this, you know, 20 something character, three word combination, that I have to enter, but only when I reboot my iOS device or it decides there's, or I, you know, misenter my, my touch ID enough times. Do you find, uh, or where do you see touch ID in the, the scheme of things versus a, a high entropy password? I mean, it depends who your threat model is. You know, if your threat model is your dog, then you're probably not too worried about <laughs> using a fingerprint reader. Uh, if you are a journalist in a foreign country and you're literally worried about somebody coming in and, and arresting you in the middle of the night, then you know you've obviously got uh, you know uh, some concerns uh, about the reader, and and there are precautions you can take. I mean, uh, I'm hoping that Apple will reduce that that lockout time from 48 hours to really. I mean, how often can you even imagine going 48 hours without using your phone? Oh my goodness, eight hours tops. You know, and that's that's assuming you sleep at night. Most people who are worried about this don't sleep at night. Um, but, uh, you know, shutting it off at night, just rebooting it, uh, you don't have to shut your phone off, but reboot your phone. So the fingerprint reader is down, uh, that'll disable it. If you're worried about, you know, someone storming in on you in the middle of the night, if you go through airport security or customs, anything like that, uh, you get pulled over, uh, in Michigan and you're worried about your fingerprint, uh, coming into play, uh, you know, you can shut the phone down. Uh, you know, worst case scenario, if you try that fingerprint two or three times on a bad finger, it's going to, I think it, it might actually be five times, but it, it's going to shut that, that reader down completely. So <laughs> I heard someone of this wonderful idea, which I think is two spy versus spy, but they said, oh, Apple should include a uh, panic room, uh, fingerprint. So if you use your pinky, for instance, it locks the phone or wipes it. That's genius. <laughs> <laughs> what if you do? That's it not a bad idea. Uh, I, I think the false positives would be huge. Like it would be used once (laughs) for like for a legitimate purpose and every single other time it would be someone did it by mistake. That's right. You know, my bigger problem is getting the fingerprint reader to work when I need it to work. Uh, You know, when I actually need to get into my phone, I'm still having to try it two or three times. So it's, I mean, you're talking about a $20 reader. It's going to have, and there are a couple of well-known techniques to spoof it already. Oh, yeah. It's really a question of, you know, how concerned are you about your fingerprint being compelled in court? How concerned are you about somebody else, you know, faking your fingerprint? I mean, each one of of those threat models has a completely different strategy on how you should handle the reader. 
it's really kind of a personal decision. I use the reader, you know, but I also have a number of different strategies on, you know, when I'm out in public with it or going through security or something like that. So it's really according to how paranoid you want to be. Uh, let me ask you a couple of reader questions here. A reader slash listeners. We have, we have both kind, uh, via Twitter, uh, uh, people had uh, wondered about a bunch of different things that we've covered already, but um, one person wondered about what Apple is like. I mean, I know we all have inside knowledge, right? But it's a good question is, is what is Apple going to do next? What's the low hanging fruit? Uh, one of our uh, IDG uh, coworkers uh, has wondered if Apple, he calls it the nuclear option. If Apple actually were to make it impossible for itself to update firmware in the way it can now that would allow it to bypass, uh, you know, install a government OS or something else. Uh, he thinks that's an incredible shot across the government's bow. But so what do you think Apple might be looking at changing uh, in the near future and you know, on the six month to one year time frame? Well, this is the first time they've had to include themselves in the threat model. Mm. So I think, you know, it's not even necessarily to spit in government's eye as much as just the realization that they can be their own uh, adversary here, right? Uh, and if you take it out of the government context, uh, there are still possibilities for employees to be blackmailed, uh, you know, uh, bribed, uh, a number of different reasons that you should protect the phone from yourself as the manufacturer. I think what what I'd like to see happen is for Apple to make a, and the, a lot of these aren't major redesigns. They'll take some resources, but I'd like to see the firmware uh, get to a point where you can't even uh, get past the bootloader of the phone to boot into any operating mm -hmm. system without first unlocking it with uh, a user passcode. Uh, if, if you're, if you're using a boot password, uh, on these phones instead of just a screen password like we, we have now, then you can have a much stronger password just to boot the phone even. You get into a situation like this where you know a, a, a nation state can force you as a manufacturer to backdoor your phone. You've essentially locked yourself out of that phone unless you have the user's consent. Uh, yeah, I think that would be a good first step. And then a number of security researchers and myself and others have submitted you know a few dozen different more low-level improvements that I think Apple could make. But that's if I could get one, I, I think that would probably be the one. That's uh, it's very interesting. And I think is the, the downside of that, does that put uh, like a regular user, are they going to encounter a situation uh, beyond the current ones? Like they lose their passcode, they forget it, something goes wrong with the phone. They're Currently, they're sort of sunk too. I guess they could, br the, if the phone bricked, they could essentially... Uh, unlock it with the iCloud, um, if they've got it locked with Find My iPhone and the, uh, the activation lock, uh, they could rewrite it. Would this make the phone totally, like, you'd have to give it back to Apple and they would have to destroy all the components that were that were locked at that point? I mean, that's, the, I guess, from a consumer standpoint, this doesn't make things horrible for consumers if that happens, but in some cases, people's phones will be unrestorable if they've forgotten their passcode. Yeah, Apple should just ship their phones with gasoline and a match. So. <laughs> 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 no, I mean the, the idea is not to um, not to brick the phone. The idea is to protect the data. So, uh, worst case scenario, you forget your boot password, and you don't have any kind of backup, uh, you know, escrow set up on your desktop to unlock it or whatever. Worst case scenario, you know, restore the phone, lose the data, and just you know start from scratch. Oh, that's good. I mean, so at least if there's a wipe option, that seems to be the the uh, the thing. And we know we are constantly telling people on this podcast and at MacWorld.com about backing up phones. You know, if you don't want to use iCloud backups because you're concerned about the integrity and security there, which is a reasonable thing in an era of of uh, government surveillance. Uh, you can do iTunes-based backups with encryption, um, although those are also breakable in a different way, but someone has to get physical proximity or break into your machines to obtain those backups, at least. You know, it's funny, talking to you, I feel, all my paranoia sounds so much more normal. It's great. This is a great, it's like <laughs> really therapy. Does. I tell people things and they're like, should I worry about this? I'm like, well, if you're the average person, probably not. But if you're engaged in anything in which you feel like either, you know, from a standpoint politically, that you just believe the government shouldn't have powers, it's one thing. Uh, from a standpoint of if you're in any country in which activists are targeted, if you're engaged in anything that any party might consider to be um, uh, uh, where you might wind up in a lawsuit, a civil suit, or you could face criminal charges, even if you don't think you're doing something illegal, but there's the potential for that happening. Like, you get the scenarios, you're like, well, it's not 97% of people, but maybe it's 15 to 20% of people with iPhones, maybe it's 30, are probably in a scenario where they should be 
uh, thinking about this and a smaller percentage actually highly concerned. The past few years have made me feel a lot more normal about my paranoia, too. Uh, <laughs> it's terrible. Thank you, Ed Snowden, for uh, normalizing our fear of the fact that there is a worldwide conspiracy against us. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Appreciate that. Uh, all right. So let me ask one more question here from uh, from a listener, which is uh, they're curious about whether the ability to securely erase an iOS device, is that really secure? Uh, you know, let's let's limit it to the modern devices that have – uh, secure enclave and encryption. So let's say 5S plus uh, after present. Um, you know, when you use an option to wipe the phone, is it a really a secure erase? Well, yeah. And so that's that's the whole reason Apple got into encryption. A lot of people don't realize that. It, it wasn't initially to protect data from being stolen because they, they were terrible at that when the 3GS first came out and the 4. And uh, the, the only purpose the encryption really served was uh, to create this, this encryption key hierarchy. And you can, you can essentially uh, drop that whole house of cards by just removing those base tier encryption keys. There's a few of them uh, on the NAND. And those, those base keys uh, build up this, this entire hierarchy on the phone. So Apple originally created this for enterprises so that they could quickly wipe devices. Um, they, they were having problems where even the refurbished devices they used to sell at first had like old customer data on them that, <laughs> that people were able to recover. I've had, uh, you know, like state troopers try some of my own forensics techniques and, uh, you know, send me like screenshots and copies of, you know, some kid on Facebook and, you know, all the girls he flirted with and all of this just, you know, from this refurb phone they got from Apple. It was, it was great. Um, but that, that's why they created it. So, so the secure wipe feature is pretty good. Um, what it does is it wipes over those base keys. It, it's very fast. Um, the rest of the data is still there, but it, it's unrecoverable at that point. The only way that, that this falls apart is if there is some way on like, let's say, you know, an electron microscope level, if there is some way to recover those keys that got wiped over, uh, you know, that would obviously uh, put a big dent in this. But I don't think anyone has has found a way to do that. So I'd say it's pretty secure. It doesn't meet, you know, most government standards for data destruction. So, uh, you know, there, there are a number of tools in the App Store that can actually wipe over the data, uh, you know, to destroy it. I've got one in there um, called Disk Analyzer. Wicker's got uh, one built into their app uh, that does something similar. Um, Apple's Apple's removed a bunch from the store um, solely on marketing grounds, ah. really. I think you can't sell the app uh, specifically to say that, you know, it it takes care of cleaning the file system, you know, that's forensically unsafe because of Apple. They kind of, you know, don't, don't like that. But, um, if, if it's kind of a side feature like it is in Wicker or disc analyzer, then they, they'll allow that. But that's really, I mean, you really only need that if you're concerned, uh, you know, on a government level about properly destroying data, if you've got to meet like DOD standards and things like that for most consumers, uh, you know, just do the reset all content and settings option that that drops those keys. I, I'm pretty confident that that's a, a safe practice. So when you hit the level where someone is going to use electronic microscopes and previously uh, unknown techniques against you, you probably are already aware or you should be aware that you're going to be facing techniques like that. There's that level of scrutiny against you. You may already be taking more extraordinary measures in any case or should be. Uh, yeah, that's when you're going to refer to the uh, gasoline and match scene, that's right. Right. which which Farouk did, mind you. What did he smash all of his devices? Yeah, I yeah. think, and apparently effectively, uh, from what was said, who knows? Maybe they have better techniques now. I, I was just rereading uh, the Maltese Falcon, and there's uh, the best security is uh, uh, Sam Spade's secretary writes down an address for him. He memorizes it and lights it with a flame. You know, it's burned away. That's the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate de uh, permanent uh, destruction of data. Um, well, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah my really pleasure. Thanks it. for inviting me on the show. You can find Jonathan on the web at his blog, which is zdziarski.com. Zajarski. And thank you, Susie Oaks, for being uh, my co-host on yet another episode of this fine podcast. 
501, baby. 501. And uh, 501 means that we'll be back again in a week for 502. So you can join us then. You can write us podcast at macworld.com. You can leave comments at macworld.com. On this podcast post, you can find us on the Twitter at Macworld, obviously, and other places. <laughs> we're, we're there. We're there. Just find us. We'll be happy to hear from you. And we, as we did in this episode, and uh, we try all the time, we listen to your questions concerns and comments and try to work them into future episodes so uh, we can get interesting guests and uh, answer things that are of interest to you. So thank you again for joining us for this episode 501 for March 30th, 2016, and we'll be back again next week. <laughs>